Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, March 19th. Last week, we talked about how companies are scraping everyone's social media photos to help train their face recognition systems, specifically to make their databanks of faces more diverse. We'll start today's show with a quick follow-up on face recognition, focusing on a new report from a team of researchers who collaborated to learn where a government standards body is getting its training data, thanks in part to some Freedom of Information Act requests. They announced their findings this week in Slate, and the first line of their story is, if you thought IBM using quietly scraped Flickr images to train facial recognition systems was bad, it gets worse. Speaking of bad, we'll talk to Ben Collins from NBC News about the role of online extremism and of platforms like Facebook that allow live broadcasting in last week's New Zealand attacks. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Welcome back to the show. Our first guests this week are Os Keys and Nikki Stevens. Os Keys is a PhD student at the University of Washington and an inaugural Microsoft Ada Lovelace Fellow. They're also a lapsed software developer. Stevens is an active software developer and a PhD student at Arizona State University. They've both been researching facial recognition technology, and according to new research that they announced via a story in Slate this week, the United States government is using photos of some of society's most vulnerable groups to test facial recognition software. Os Keys and Nikki Stevens, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you for having us. Your research finds that basically the agency in charge of the gold standard test for face recognition software, this is NIST, or the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce, has been using, without consent, photos of uh, immigrants, abused children, dead people uh, in their data set, uh, and and to test uh, the facial recognition systems developed by companies. Um, why Why is this problematic? Why is this concerning? I mean, I think we could fill an hour on why this is problematic or two or three. Um, The first thing that comes to my mind is always uh, using images of people without consent. So the fact that NIST and the government are using images of people who applied for immigration visas, people who have been arrested but not convicted, um, so mugshot data and child exploitation photos, the fact that all of these are being used essentially for commercial profit, without the consent of any of the individuals involved, is my number one problem, personally. And it's not just the aspect of consent, it's also like, can those people consent? How do you get dead people to consent? Um, And also the overarching aspect of like, these are not only people who cannot consent, but people whose data collection was never, not just by NIST, but in general, was never entirely voluntary. the, the dead people in question are um, people who were arrested disproportionately because of the U.S. criminal, air quotes, justice system. Um, disproportionately, like, African-American people, uh, some as young as 15. The immigrants uh, were visa application photos. Uh, the child abuse victims were child abuse victims. Um, and so it's not just an issue of, like, NIST not asking consent, but also the overarching thing of, uh, you know, can you really meaningfully ask for consent in that situation? 
at all. Like, if you arrest someone and, you know, take their mugshot, asking whether or not they're willing to sign a waiver afterwards is not necessarily going to make much of a difference. Um, they're already in the system against their will. Yeah, so this is, in some cases, this is exploitation on top of exploitation. And in, in some instances, it's data that was unethical in how it was collected in the first place, and then it's being used on, without consent. We talked last week on this show about uh, IBM in particular scraping Flickr and scraping people's social media photos without their consent to help build facial recognition uh, data sets. In some ways, this is even more problematic. What do you think it is that is either allowing or encouraging seemingly everybody involved in this face recognition ecosystem to just go gather data sort of willy-nilly without anybody, without, you know, reaching out to people? I think if your driver is a sort of um, capitalist techno-ethics and we need to make the, quote, best system possible, um, then we'll stop at nothing to reach that goal, then this is just a logical part of that process. It makes absolute logical sense that we need as many different types of images as possible. We need them, um, we need a large variety. We need to get them and not pay for them in order to reach our goal. To me, this makes perfect sense if that's the kind of worker and ethicist that you are. I would agree with that. Um, in terms of like, sort of like applied logic of that, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of the people involved in this data collection and usage simply don't see the people who are in their data sets as people. Um, and, and I'm biased on this because I am the data sets in question, specifically the like uh, dead arrestees data set. I've spent a lot of time looking through that data set because it's actually released online. The US government has made it available to anyone who wants to train systems. Um, and one of the things that I found hardest to deal with is the complete amorality of the people who put the data set together and the documentation around it. Um, the data set contains people as young as 15. A lot of them are beaten up and bleeding or bandaged from confrontations before the police got there or confrontations with the police. Um, there are people crying and screaming and not only are they all included in this data set even after death, the documentation that comes along with the data set and contains you know, documentation on like how they went around adjusting the data set. There is a photo in there that they've picked up and it is of a African-American man, I'd guess in his like 50s or 60s, and he is screaming in the photo. And they have said, this is a really interesting example of the kind of image that requires manual adjustment of the like, you know, points of like where facial features are. And that's their take. They do not see the subjects of this data as human. They see them as data points. Um, and I'll let Oss uh, speak to this because they know a little bit more than I do. But I, my understanding is that early systems were, were tested and trained on people who consented. And that, to me, despite the problems with facial recognition more broadly, which are many, at the very least, they took pictures of people, those people consented, they used them for the project. That's just not happening here. Let's talk about how NIST, uh, the kind of standards board in the United States, uh, uses this data can you kind of explain the process here about how this is kind of like a standard setting set of data or data that's used for um, to decide if, if a piece of technology is uh, applicable to be used by the U.S. government in some way? Uh, so many thoughts about NIST. Um, so the gold standard is uh, these tests, which are the Facial Recognition Vendor Test Program, or FRVT. They're considered, yeah, pretty much the gold standard uh, test for 
is this facial recognition system like the best system in terms of accuracy, reliability, you know, speed? And they're highly influential. Um, you'll see a lot of government entities and a lot of private companies uh, point to the NIST rankings as like an argument for why they went for a particular facial recognition vendor or like contracted out to them. And the way that the tests work with this data is essentially that um, someone brings them like brings NIST their facial recognition algorithm and then the facial recognition algorithm is taken off to uh, the Naval Special Warfare or Surface Warfare Center in uh, Dahlgren, Virginia um, because this is how heavily embedded in like the military this program is and the algorithm is tested against these data sets uh, and all of the algorithms are tested against the same range of data sets formatted in the same way and then they get sort of like standardized results of like speed, accuracy rate, all the rest. Now the companies don't get access to the data itself, although um, the dead arrestee data is, again, like freely available online. NIST put it there intentionally so that people could use it. Um, they just get a report back of like, you know, your algorithm was the fastest in the world or the second fastest or the most accurate. But that to me is a real problem when we're looking at these people who are setting out the standards and the normal way of doing things and seeing them behave in ways that are frankly vile. Uh, the violence of um, grabbing people through a racist criminal justice system and then keeping their photographs after death to make that justice system more efficiently racist. Right. So this is an issue we've talked about on the show now several times is that there was this problem with lack of diversity in facial recognition data sets. And then the response was, okay, let's go out and diversify the data sets in the easiest way possible. It turns out that that's often done in a very exploitative and unethical way, often without consent. And a takeaway that I liked from your piece was, rather than focusing on greater diversity, we should be focusing on more regulation at every step in the process. This regulation cannot come from standards bodies unfit for the purpose. And basically the groups who are being affected by facial recognition need to be brought into the process and given a stake in how this technology is developed and used. Os Keys and Nikki Stevens, thanks so much for joining us on If Then. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we'll talk to Ben Collins from NBC News about the recent attacks in New Zealand and the spread of online extremism. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Ben Collins, a reporter at NBC News. He's been paying close attention to the massacre in New Zealand, focusing on how online radicalization works, as well as how big Internet platforms responded to their services being used to amplify violence and hate. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Really happy to be here, guys. 
So Facebook said on Monday, yesterday, that it took 29 minutes after the live stream started of the massacre in New Zealand uh, for it to be removed. It was watched about 4,000 times before it was taken down, and none of the viewers who watched it reported it. Uh, Facebook added that it removed 1.5 million videos of the rampage throughout the following day after it first aired. And before the shooting started, the murderer left a sprawling 74-page packet of information on the Anything Goes message board 8chan. And it was loaded with white nationalist talking points and memes from the depths of hateful online subcultures. Can you tell us a little bit about what he left on 8chan specifically? And like, was this like a set of instructions or, you know, how can we use this to understand the motives of the shooter? Or is that kind of a landmine? Uh, it's both. But I, mean, I, I think we should be able to talk about the motives of something without you know, amplifying a message necessarily, mm-hmm. especially the delivery method, I think is important to show people just to show how online the guy was, really. Um, he posted a manifesto on a bunch of file sharing sites that are like really deep internet stuff. And, and then he posted a link to his Facebook page and, and eventually his Twitter page too, that live streamed this video. And even the video itself is riddled with memes. It has songs that are white nationalist meme songs, things like that. So we have to talk about that sort of thing. We have to talk about the fact that this guy clearly got into this white nationalist mode from the Internet. There's pretty, there's pretty much no way this guy didn't uh, at least uh, advance his racism through the Internet. Um, so it's important to talk about that. But in terms of like his actual opinions about we, – we shouldn't be asking white supremacists how they feel about anything, really – um, right. But we should be trying to identify how people get there. Like that's that is the number one way we can defang these people is to show them the power behind this and the money behind this thing, this, this sort of thing. It's the number one way that people can understand that they are being duped in these situations. And sorry if this is a dumb question, but part of the way we we can assume that he got radicalized largely online is because these types of white supremacist movements didn't come from New Zealand. Right. They came from a lot of them came from the United States and then some from Europe. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the meme song that I was talking about, actually, is a Serbian nationalist song called Remove Kebab. It's very racist. It's so racist, in fact, that if you looked up information about it before the shooting, people would say, like, oh, this is a joke about how stupid xenophobic people sound. Um, that changed pretty quickly um, on those websites that sort of explain memes after the fact. This is... This is a wildly racist person, and it came from um, information that he gleaned uh, from, from various different extremist message boards. The poll message board on HN, you will not find a moderate thought on that thing. It's just not possible. The point of it is to, is to increase the rhetoric, to get more and more edgy. And at some point, for a lot of these people who are just jumping in midstream, the irony is lost. The irony of the edginess doesn't exist. They're just seeing consistent violent rhetoric and they're being rooted on to carry out terror attacks, which is what happened in this situation. And so, you know, he left this on HN thinking that people would find it and and they did. Uh, And so, you know, what's the fine line between, you know, showing people that these places exist and they're scary and they're used by people to forward agendas of hate and uh, and not kind of giving oxygen to, to these spaces? Yeah, I mean, there's two lines of thought there, right, that maybe we shouldn't talk about it at all. Um, but I don't think there's, like, some sort of magic in seeing a manifesto or magic in seeing 
8chan for the first time. If you're stumbling ap- across it and you're a right-minded person, you're like, oh, this place is disgusting and terrible. What the real problem that we face as like societally now, not just in the United States, but now worldwide, as we can see, is people who are led to 8chan where their, uh, I guess their morality is broken down over, the ser- over a series of algorithmic decisions that they didn't even necessarily have anything to do with. So you can start in a relatively regular political part of YouTube. And since the algorithm really tailors itself towards watch time or completed videos and clicks, people will tailor their content to be a little bit more extreme than the last video. And that's how people get led down these rabbit holes. And then at the end of that rabbit hole, there is somebody saying, go to 8chan, and they, that's where all the answers are. That's what QAnon people say, at least. Or go to, go to my mm-hmm. Gab account. That's where, that's where I can tell you a little bit more about this stuff. Or go to my Patreon and pay for, you know, uh, allow me to uh, continue living uh, on my conspiracy making. So that's where the larger problem is. It's not just seeing the manifesto. It's the people who the manifesto might be like sort of a, a last radicalization call. It might get them to rise up at the end of it. So that, that's what the fear is for a lot of people. It's not for the, uh, I guess, mass consumption that scares people. It's for those people who are at the last step. Right. And so, you know, if people get led to 8chan, one way they would do that would be through somehow encountering this on Facebook Live where it was broadcasted. And that's another thread I want to pull here and talk about. You know, this massacre was available for people to watch on a very mainstream platform. It was broadcast live. And, and and just to be clear, this is not the first time that we've seen violence broadcast on Facebook Live. This has happened a lot over the years since it's existed, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, the part of how I got onto this beat personally, um, I, I'm, uh, I'm friends with Chris Hurst, who lost his fiance in a shooting that was carried out on a live stream. Um, he, uh, it's Allison mm-hmm. Parker. She was a, a reporter in Roanoke who, um, who, who was killed by a disgruntled employee like live on the internet that was that was carried out there so this has been around for three or four years like the premise of this is not new um the the i guess the difference is people are starting to understand that we have ungovernable platforms we have um created frankenstein monsters that we really cannot contain at this point um and what you can do and facebook has created retroactive uh technology that helps identify the stuff and pull it down that's what they they do this with ISIS, too, or they, they take these things called hashes, which are these identifying markers within the videos, and they can, from there, see if it is the same video and pull it down algorithmically, and it has a pretty good success rate. But that's just for that video. That's just for that one. Um, they have much larger problems that have to do with extremist content and radicalization that are not really readily, immediately addressable by using a slight piece of technology. You need moderation and you need um, a little bit of help, maybe some, maybe some regulation. So that, that's where the next step is here. It's not just about taking down the thing that happened last week. It's about trying to stop the thing that's happening in the future. I just wanted to throw in, this is not a case where Facebook launched this, this live streaming product on some kind of naive, idealistic assumption that people right. were good and nothing bad would happen on it. When Mark Zuckerberg announced Facebook Live in the first place, he used the, the phrase raw and visceral multiple times. He wanted Facebook to not feel boring, not feel like an old people's social network. He knew that, that stuff was going to go down on here, and that was that, you know, at least my perspective is that was part of the appeal for him. So I just don't want to, like, let him off the hook for that. Yeah, no, and I think that I think it's important 
to get into the mind of executives here, tech executives, because it's a little bit disassociated from us. The reason they're, we're having such a hard time in getting them to change their platforms is because they don't think they made a bad thing. They went into this with the idea that, like, oh, you know, the next time a cop shoots a person on the street, we'll be able to live stream this thing, right? That's what they were thinking about at that moment. They weren't thinking, like, oh, we're, like, we're going to allow these mass killings to happen. They were thinking in benevolent terms. And now they're seeing these technologies being, I guess, manipulated by bad actors, right? Uh, ways that they never thought they could be used. And they're not pivoting fast enough to use their lingo, right? They're not, um, they're not understanding the reality of what's actually taking place. Um, and that's probably psychological, I would assume. But it's leaving a lot of society behind. It's making it so it's basically unpoliceable, ungovernable. And it's, it's, going to, it's going to lead to more and more tragedies until they start to come up with creative solutions and make it their number one priority. And, and that might be architectural because, you know, when we think about this, the history of regulating broadcasting in the United States, which, which goes back 100 years, um, you know, broadcast licenses are, are traditionally only given out to very, very few actors. And there were decades of regulation wherein broadcasters were required to meet certain public interest requirements in order to hold those licenses. I mean, it's been deregulated really since the 80s and, and 90s over the years. But there's certainly a tradition of, of thinking of broadcast as something that is uh, not doled out uh, freely and something that is a very privileged responsibility. And uh, and and we're seeing broadcasts used, you know, in ways that are obviously not good for society or people almost seem to be performing over it. I'm curious what, what you think of that. I mean, it seems like this, you know, Facebook Live is, is being used almost as a stage uh, where people are, are getting an audience for things that are really awful. Yeah, that's the larger problem with this whole situation is that there is two drivers here. One is just money. Um, people who are making radical content or extremist content are now incentivized to do so. And it's not just from YouTube ads or whatever. There's, there's Patreons, like mm-hmm. I said. There are places off-site where these people can sell merchandise or whatever. So if you see that ratcheted up rhetoric in places like the QAnon sphere, for example, that's really what it's down to. It's about graft and that sort of thing. But from a, like a teenage standpoint where you see with like wannabe YouTubers and things like that, it's about identity. It's like most of the internet is about identity. It's about curating an image of yourself. And when you've lost um, control of your identity, like a lot of white supremacists have, they, they feel alienated, they feel isolated, and they turn to a group that understands them, they, they, who preys on their vulnerability. And that's the larger problem that we have to address. This is not an easy, quick fix. This is not something that you can go and create some technology overnight that stops this stuff. This is about education. We need to get um, not just young people, but old people too, to understand that making these videos, re- watching these videos and things like that, there's something behind that in your animal, the animal part of your brain that makes you want to be part of a community there, right? And that's something that we have to reckon with. We have to under- start to understand what this technology is doing to us. And I'm not sh- I'm, we're not even close to there yet. That's like a whole, it's a whole different can of worms. Yeah, there's a lot of in-group performance going on. Yeah, exactly. So there's a phrase that's been going around recently. It's sort of gaining popularity among people who think about the Internet's role in spreading hate or violence or that sort of thing. The phrase is freedom of speech but not of reach. Um, The idea being that maybe content platforms uh, like Facebook and YouTube can let people, you know, sort of give a broad berth to people to say a lot of controversial things, but then there will be certain 
classes of things that they find ways to avoid amplifying, right? Like you can say it on Facebook, but Facebook is going to make sure that its news feed algorithm or that its other algorithms aren't making it go viral. Is that a concept that you think has has relevance with respect to videos of the New, New Zealand shooting and or the, the sort of radicalizing content that might have pushed the shooter in that direction in the first place? Yeah, it's, it's uh, what we've generally dealt with before the internet it's it's it, like for example if you saw a crazy person on the side of the road um that man is not entitled to uh like a giant concert stage and a, like mm-hmm. a, a television license let alone a megaphone um but in this case he if he manipulates the technology correctly um he can do that himself he can diy that sort of setup and that that's okay like that's something that we can talk about on a different scale, but when it becomes the primary thing that your network is incentivizing, which is what YouTube has done for years, and Facebook has done for years too, which is really what their you know fake fake news and disinformation problem was, that's when it becomes a larger problem. And that's you know Renee Duresta, who's a researcher on this sort of thing, she came up with the free speech versus free reach thing, right? Where there's no uh, I would say moral imperative to give every single person the same exact reach for their ideas, because that creates this idea where, you know, the craziest concept then has to be refuted all of the time by scientists and researchers. You see this with like the anti-vax movement, for example. People who were vaccination groups who were previously focused in spending their money on getting people vaccinated that could not afford it, now have to spend all of their research money and all all, all of their time trying to get these people to stop slandering the premise of vaccinating your children. So if that's just happening in that sphere, it can happen in every single idea. Um, so we're just going to have arguments back and forth instead of advancing stuff. And that's, that's going to inhibit science. It's going to inhibit how we talk to each other. It's going to inhibit pretty much every part of a democracy. So we need to find a better way than currently, which is incentivizing the craziness. Uh, we can incentivize stuff that's proven, we just haven't chosen not to do it yet. And, you know, these are just s- such difficult questions to tackle. And we know that lawmakers are thinking about it. Uh, it's just, you know, it doesn't seem like these platforms are going to fix themselves without some sort of legal obligation to do so. It's just frustrating because th- these ha- problems have existed for a decade and or over a decade. And, and it seems like the critical thinking about how to regulate them is, is just starting to happen. Yeah, and I, I mean, this is sort of an issue generally where it's already been co-opted. The conversation's already been taken from, for example, when Elizabeth Warren put out that um, statement saying she'd break up these tech companies. And, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that's good. But it was immediately, you know, uh, squatted upon, I would say, by Ted Cruz uh, to talk about free speech, right? To talk about the premise mm-hmm. that conservatives are being censored, which, by the way, there is no empirical data that actually says that's true. Extremists are being censored, but conservatives are not. So it's already become this political fight when, you know, talking about the actual breakup of what are genuine monopolies is a much different conversation than the one that's going to be had by, like, semi or not even remotely liter- technologically literate Congress people. So that, that's, the, that's the problem is that I, I wouldn't say this is going to get fixed by Congress. Maybe the FCC, mm-hmm. uh, if it starts to take it more seriously or, you know, a GPI is not involved, um, could do something here. But 
it's going to be a long slog here, and it's going to really be on determination from the tech companies themselves. Yeah, we don't seem to have a regulatory scaffolding to really think about this. Well, Ben Collins, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your expertise and time here. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Will, what's your tab this week? All right, this week I have sort of a two-part tab. It starts with Facebook trying to do something good. Facebook has been trying to boost local news in the news feed. It has a new feature called Today In that tries to show you stuff that's going on in your community, drawing on local content sources. They started researching how to do this, and they realized that there are a lot of places across the country that are referred to as news deserts, where there actually is not enough originally produced local journalism to even make this feature a possibility on Facebook. And the second part of the tab is the the realization, uh, mostly outside of Facebook, that Facebook itself has caused a lot of this problem. And Facebook has been a big part of gutting the business model of newspapers and and local news in particular. And so there's a a sort of a sad irony in Facebook now being unable to develop its local news product because the sources that it needs to draw on aren't there anymore. And to swoop in on your Facebook beat there, Will, I have a piece about uh, Facebook's mess and how some lawmakers are thinking about cleaning it up, particularly David Cicilline, a member of the House and who chairs the subcommittee on antitrust, And he wrote an op-ed on Tuesday in The New York Times called The Case for Investigating Facebook. He's calling on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate Facebook for violating antitrust laws. The company is already under investigation with the FTC for uh, violating consumer privacy, uh, particularly in regard to the Cambridge Analytica mess and scandal, rather, that the company was in last year after we learned that uh, 87 million Facebook users had their uh, data improperly harvested and handed over to a voter analytics firm that was working for the Trump campaign. I know we have some regular listeners who either work at Facebook or used to work at Facebook. Just wanted to take this chance to say I, I admire your stomach for, for criticism, and I appreciate that you, that you listen to our show, uh, even though we do not go never go easy on Facebook. (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, I think this is a really interesting question. I mean, we're talking about one of the most powerful companies in the world that has obviously not done a 
perfect job of uh, keeping the products that it provides for its users really in good standing and of really serving the community that's come to depend on its products. And so it makes sense that uh, that the government would, would would step in here. And I and I'm glad to see regulators uh, like Representative Ciceline, uh, you know, really stepping up to the plate. All right, that does it for our show this week. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. And I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guests today, Os Keys, Nikki Stevens, and Ben Collins. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever you use to listen. We really appreciate your time in doing that. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks so much, Cameron. Great work. And also here with me in Berkeley, California, where it's overcast, sadly. I want to thank Topher for engineering me today. I recorded from home in Newark, Delaware. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.